Hello and welcome to episode 13 of Not Reserving Judgment, a podcast about the latest intrigues, triumphs, and outrages in Canadian constitutional law. I'm Josh DeHaas, counsel with the Canadian Constitution Foundation. I'm Joanna Barron, Executive Director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation. And I'm Christine Van Gein, the CCF's Litigation Director. In today's episode, we'll discuss how the Supreme Court of Canada has once again decided that mandatory minimum sentences set by Parliament amount to cruel and unusual punishment. We'll share our bad legal takes of the week where we take a lighthearted look at some legal opinions that didn't quite land. We'll tell you what we know about Justin Trudeau's new appointment to the Supreme Court of Canada. But first, let's talk about a lawsuit that aims to fight back against some of the blatant anti-Semitism that's unfortunately bubbled to the surface in recent weeks. Christine, tell us about the lawsuit. So this story stood out to me for a couple of reasons. First, because I know the lawyer who is bringing this case. And second, because I obviously, if you listen to the podcast, know I'm very obsessed with the issue of the rise of anti-Semitism while this Israel-Hamas war is taking place. And we're seeing all this anti-Semitism kind of erupting above the surface that I've kind of learned was always there festering. I just wasn't really quite aware. So this is a lawsuit brought by a lawyer named Catherine Marshall. And uh, I know Catherine, she has previously been on the board of our organizations for full disclosure, uh, currently not on the board, but she brought a human rights tribunal complaint for 25 Jewish members of Canada's largest public sector union, CUPE. These are 25 individual uh, human rights complaints. And they're brought against the union specifically, alleging discrimination and anti-Semitism. And this has been following some pretty awful tweets and social media posts by the union's Ontario president, Fred Hahn, in the immediate wake of the October 7th massacre of Israeli civilians. So on Thanksgiving, October 8th, the day after the massacre, when we've all learned about the scope of these atrocities, Han tweeted, as we think about reasons to be thankful, I know I'm thankful for the power of resistance around the globe and resistance brings progress, which I think rightfully is seen by many as an amplification of Hamas's October 7th messaging that it was not a terrorist attack, which it obviously was, but it was instead some type of justified resistance, which it obviously was not. It was the murder of babies and children in pajamas and 200 people have been kidnapped. So he also posted a Palestinian graphic with the phrase from the river to the sea, uh, which is a translation from an Arabic phrase. And it's a common call to arms for pro-Palestinian activists it calls for the establishment of a state of Palestine from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, erasing the state of Israel and its people. It's a rallying cry for Hamas. And while some people say this expression can have different meanings to different people, it obviously has a very clear meaning for Hamas. Uh, and it means the eradication of all Jews from Israel. And it is a choice for Western activists to use this phrase, knowing what Hamas means by it. And the anti-Israel activists who chant it, whether they know it or not, or maybe whether they intend it or not, are endorsing this extreme violent ideology of the Iranian mullahs of Hamas and other terrorist groups who are intent on destroying Israel. 
Now, QP was quick to make excuses for Han's actions, saying that uh, this was just a backlash of online trolls affiliated with the Israel lobby, and they sort of doubled down on the narrative that Hamas's clear war crimes perpetrated against civilians were merely an exercise of Palestinians' rights under international law to resistance and armed struggle. So Hans' tweets are not the sole basis of this claim. Um, there was also a tweet from McMaster's QP Local 3906 on the day of the massacre uh, when we were seeing this footage, they tweeted kind of cheering it on, saying Palestine is rising, long live the resistance, accompanied by a rose emoji. So obviously quite disgusting. Now, according to this human rights claim uh, for 25 different Jewish QP members, Han also told Jewish members that he doesn't, on a previous occasion, that he doesn't believe that Jewish people should live in Israel and that Israel stole the land from Palestinians. And it has other, you know, incidents like a QP resolution from 2018, which said Israel was illegally occupying the former Palestine and a 2021 resolution to oppose the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance's definition of anti-Semitism and a 2023 emergency re resolution to conduct member education about Israel's, the history of Israel's, quote, occupation and colonization. It also a, alleges that QP produced and distributed infographics claiming that Israel's ethnically cleansing Palestinian people. And it says that the claim says that the union silenced Jewish members. There's one uh, allegation that a camera and microphone of a Jewish delegate to a virtual convention of QP was cut off because she was wearing an IDF t-shirt. Meanwhile, members of QP were allowed to raise free Palestine flags on their screens as they spoke. It also, the claim also alleges that the union intentionally or unintentionally held events during Yom Kippur, which is the most holy day in the Jewish calendar, and that this reduced the ability of Jewish members to participate in union events. So as I said, these are all separate human rights complaints brought by 25 members. It's not a class action. It's 25 individual complaints. And I do think um, that the number of complaints is growing. And apparently it's all being done pro bono by this Catherine Marshall lawyer who I know. Now, I, this is all based on reporting. I haven't read the complaints itself. And look, I generally have uh, pretty not good feelings about these human rights tribunals. I think that they tend to overstep their role. I think that they can get weaponized, usually by progressive activists. So I generally don't like this type of thing. Uh, but hey, I guess give these activists a taste of their own medicine. Um, I have no thoughts really on the prospect of success of the claim, although I do think that the $500,000 damages being claimed here is outrageously high. I don't think discrimination claims will typically get you an amount like that. It's not going to be anywhere close to 500,000. There's also a claim in here for the Jewish members in the complaints to allow them, they're seeking an order to allow them to redirect their union dues to Jewish charities. I think there's zero chance that the tribunal will, will agree to do that. But what I do think this complaint does that's interesting is it creates some public pressure on the union president. 
upon to either be removed from the organization or resign because I think his comments are abhorrent. And I do think that the comments are anti-Semitic, no matter how you spin them. And, you know, the, the union has defended Han saying that this is just expression in support of Palestinians. But I do think that there is discrimination in those comments. And I think if I was a member of that union, I wouldn't feel comfortable at all around anyone, let alone a leader who appears to be cheerleading and celebrating murder, which is my interpretation of Han's comments. Although I've as I've said, he says that there's a different interpretation. Josh, any reaction to this lawsuit by Catherine Marshall? Han is an anti-Semite. I think that's pretty clear. And I think these comments are abhorrent. And I'm glad to see people are going after him, whether this is like the right means to do that. I'm not sure because like you, I haven't yet read the the complaints to the, the Human Rights Tribunal. But I, I, I want to say I also noticed there are some lawsuits out there that are getting creative uh, involving students who feel they've been victims of anti-Semitism and the claims. There, there's one here in Toronto going after a few universities. And I saw there's one at the University of British Columbia as well. And the argument seems to be that there's a standard of care that universities have to meet in terms of protecting their students from anti-Semitism on campus and that they're falling below that standard. And to me, this seems pretty novel. Uh, I don't know too much about whether it'll succeed or not, uh, but it'll certainly be interesting to watch. Joanna, what what do you think about this? Yeah, well, on the um, York University lawsuit, which is a class action lawsuit being brought by Diamond and Diamond, which is this big uh, and somewhat beleaguered personal injury firm. I just think it's dumb that they're bringing it as a class action, because the whole thing with class actions is that it takes a long time to certify the class. Um, like that's the major procedural hurdle. And and the other thing that's kind of uh, to say the quiet part out loud is that class actions make lawyers a lot of money. Um, so I'm a little cynical of the motives in that. In terms of Fred Hahn and QP, I just think this is a distillation. His comments, his whole worldview, as much as I can glean it from his comments, this is just a perfect microcosm of the problem that the left has has just shored up in the last month, that everything is cast in oppressor, oppressed politics, um, and therefore within their worldview. I, I think a lot of these people haven't been to Israel because if they did, they would notice that calling Israel a white supremacist uh, settler colonial nation, which oppresses people of color. Um, if you get to Israel, you quickly notice that a majority of Israelis are of Mizrahi um, or Sephardic descent. Um, so they are the same color as Palestinians. Um, there's also Ethiopian Jews. There's also um, uh, Black Jews from the U.S., many of whom have immigrated. Like I think you'd be shocked by how diverse uh, Israel is. Uh, I was very quickly spotted as a foreigner when I lived there, uh, that it's like that it fits neatly into their worldview, just shows how ignorant they are. And it's also no coincidence that Hamas has picked up on this. And Yahya Sinwar, who's one of the leaders, um, compared the Palestinian plight to uh, the racist killing of George Floyd. So even though Hamas uh, vows to destroy the West and all of its values, they're cynical enough to know how this rhetoric works. 
Um, and so I, I don't know what's going to happen with this claim. Uh, I share Christine's cynicism about human rights tribunals, um, but I do think that it's good to amplify and just um, be clear that uh, these comments and this ideological positioning um, is harming QB's uh, Jewish members. Uh, and the comments are anti-Semitic, right? Criticizing Israel is not anti-Semitic, um, but calling into question the legitimacy of the only Jewish state uh, is anti-Semitic. So that's all I will say about that for now. Uh, Josh, let's talk about, we have a new Supreme Court justice. Yay. Uh, so what should we know about her? Yeah, so the Prime Minister has done it again. Uh, two years ago, he managed to make history by appointing the first person of color and Muslim to the Supreme Court, Mahmoud Jamal. Last year, he did it again by finding a judge who is not only female, but also Indigenous and bilingual and from Ontario, Justice Obonsoin. And he's managed to pull another rabbit out of, out of his hat, finding a judge who is not only you know female, but also Francophone and from Alberta, which is a uh, a hard thing to find. So I'm, of course, talking about our new Justice Mary Moreau, who was sworn in this week to replace Justice Brown, who was forced to retire because uh, an ex-Marine punched him. Um, this decision brings the Supreme Court back up to its full strength, which is nine justices. And it's being celebrated because it's the first time the Supreme Court will have a majority of, of women on it. And I do think diversity is important, including bilingualism. That's obviously a strength. But the Supreme Court has immense power to shape our lives. So to me, it's it, it, we should probably prioritize, you know, experience over things like race or gender or bilingualism. But the prime minister seems to think otherwise. And I'm not saying like any of these three judges won't be like a particularly good judge. But even with Justice Jamal, you know, it's too early to tell. I just think that we're excluding um, some of the best candidates by by focusing so much on um, whether it's, you know, the first or history making appointment. Um, with that rant over, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what we know about Justice Moreau and some of her background. And I gleaned a lot of this just from watching um, the hearing that she did before Parliamentary Justice Committee the other day. And my general impression is she seems like a nice, smart person who is not particularly ideological, apart maybe from the issue of minority language rights. And this, by the way, is what a few Albertans who I spoke to have told me their impression is that, you know, she's nice and not particularly ideological. And that's probably a good thing in a, a Supreme Court judge. But like I said, she has these strong views on minority language rights. And that's because being Franco-Albertan shaped her own life story. As she told the committee, her grandfather left Quebec, moved to Saskatchewan, and then her father left Saskatchewan for Edmonton where he became a surgeon and an advocate for French language rights. Moreau has seven siblings and she has four kids of her own with her criminal defense lawyer husband. And she's got a grandchild on the way, she said. Um, Justice Moreau is 67, which means she'll hit the mandatory retirement age in less than eight years. And that makes her appointment, you know, a little bit of a surprise because prime ministers like to appoint judges who will be on the court for decades. Her, her first big case, the one that launched her career, is also kind of telling. It was a case where an alleged trafficker of cocaine uh, was pushing for the right to have a jury trial in French in Alberta, which is really hard to do because, like I said, there's very few francophones in Alberta. And then Moro got appointed to the bench at age 38, which she admits is earlier than most judges. And she says it's 
due to the fact that she was a francophone judge in Alberta at a time when the government was looking for francophone judges in Alberta. And she says there was some backbiting about this appointment, but it just made her work harder. This particular anecdote kind of reminded me of uh, former Chief Justice Beverly, Beverly McLaughlin because she was appointed at age 37 and rapidly promoted. And she said that, you know, part of the reason she was appointed at such a young age and um, her tr career trajectory was was um, so straight and narrow was the fact that she was a female judge at a time when politicians suddenly decided they needed to appoint female judges. So it looks like the same um, luck sort of befell uh, Justice Morrow. One thing I did notice is she seems to be on, um, on board with, I guess, what I would call sort of more mainstream, but kind of woke policies. So for example, she introduced uh, smudging and the eagle feather for Indigenous witnesses in courtrooms. And I got to say, like, I find the smudging thing a little bit hokey sometimes because obviously it's an important practice for certain Indigenous nations, but like white people seem to think that, you know, Indigenous nations, like all of them smudge and that it's part of all of their cultures, which is not really true. And it kind of sent me back to law school where we did, we had a, an Indigenous uh, speaker come and do a talking circle. And the point was to try and make us understand Indigenous people better. And uh, he did some smudging, which was voluntary. I personally opted out of it because it's a spiritual practice and I just didn't feel comfortable doing it. Also because this elder, I think I told you this story before, Christine and Joanna, he had just finished telling us that there was no sexual assault in Indigenous cultures pre-contact, which I found kind of offensive and hard to believe, um, as if Indigenous people are not prone to all the horrible atrocities that every other people are prone to. But anyway, it was funny, like when this started, like I, I, I was like, no, I'll just pass. And then a couple other people pass. And then it got to this one girl and she stood up like rapidly, her chair fell back and she just like ran, she bolted from the room. Um, I guess she was like very, I don't know, maybe she thought it was witchcraft or something, but anyway, back to Justice Moreau. So. Which it um, isn't, it isn't right. Like obviously. Yeah, I don't think we need to say that even like it's just it's it's a spiritual practice. Some people believe it and some people don't. But anyway, so she also Justice Moreau also like she was talking about how she brought in a 2SLGBTQ1 plus member of the community to speak to judges. And um, I thought this was funny because I was like, oh, 2SLGBTQ1 plus that must be some new that must be some new acronym that just dropped. But I think that it doesn't actually exist. And the one that she's talking about there is just an I. And so she might need to brush up a little bit more on her 2SLGBTQ acronyms. She was also talking about how she does, uh, you know, international judges training. And that's, that's a good thing for advancing rule of law. But at the same time, I don't know if that's something Supreme Court justices should be doing necessarily because their job is to decide cases. And as Yuan Yizhu pointed out the other day, they only decided 54 cases in the year 2022, which is uh, six per person, if my math is correct there. Uh, maybe they should be more focused on on cases than the judges training. But I'll just finish by, by uh, quoting her. So Justice Moreau said, quote, you can never take it for granted that the rule of law is truly cemented firmly because it does take the trust of Canadians 
And I think that's true. But I think, you know, sometimes when you get a little bit into these woke um, sort of political conversations that it can actually harm your trust with Canadians because a lot of people are are not on board with um, those particular political views. So I agree with Justice Moreau and I, I wish her luck. Um, the pr- Supreme Court's really important and I, I, I want them to get decisions right. So Joanna, what are your thoughts on the, the new Supreme Court pick? Well, I'm just like curiously optimistic. We don't know a ton about her. So I also wish her all the best. One thing that I thought was funny was some of the commentary around the majority, uh, the majority female bench now at the Supreme Court, um, which also reminded me of one of our favorite uh, podcast reviews, which we mentioned last week that we have too much estrogen and too little testosterone on this podcast. Well, the Supreme Court is now also estrogen dominant. But there's a, a joke um, that I think in the 90s, Bertha Wilson, when uh, Claire Leroux de Bay was appointed, she turned to her and said, like, two down, uh, seven more to go, or something like that, which raises the question like, is it a goal to have an all female bench? Uh, and why would that be? Um, anyways, obviously, I think appointments should be according to their merit uh, and also certain principles of geographic representation. Um, but I don't really have anything else to say about Justice Moreau. Christine, do you have any thoughts? The only thing I don't know, if, I don't think you mentioned this, Josh, the headline from the Globe and Mail uh, article announcing her appointment was I consider her a fighter, which was an interview from some lawyer in Alberta who knows her. And there was some commentary about this. Like, is that what you want in a Supreme Court justice? Like perhaps what you want and, and keep it. This, these are not her words about herself. It's someone's description of her, but like perhaps rather than a fighter, we want like a someone judicious. And I'm not suggesting she wouldn't also be judicious. It's just an interesting perspective on what what certain lawyers value in uh, an appointment to the bench. Yeah, I agree. I think it was Andrew Coyne who said that. And I, I I agreed with that comment as much as it's fun to, you know, talk about judges, personalities and things like that. I think what we want is for them to, you know, set aside their particular biases and, and life experiences and just focus on, on what the law is, but it's a pretty unpopular opinion. Um, Joanna, let's move on now. Let's talk about your news headline. I, everybody's talking about this case. I haven't actually read it yet. So why don't you fill us in? Yeah, so this was released last Friday. It's called RV Bertrand Marchand. And uh, a few reasons why it's kind of buzzing. There's two topics that uh, tend to get a lot of chatter in the law world. The first is mandatory minimum sentences. And the second is sort of morally egregious crimes, such as child luring. And in this case, the court ruled that applying mandatory minimums to the offense of child luring is unconstitutional. Um, This was a six to one decision, and I'll mention the dissent in a moment, but the majority found um, that the mandatory minimum violates the right in section 12, which protects against cruel and unusual uh, punishment. Uh, The majority written by Justice Sheila Martin found that the mandatory periods of incarceration Um, apply to such a wide scope of conduct that the result is grossly disproportionate, which is, um, she's speaking in the language of the test under Section 12, cruel and unusual punishment, in reasonably foreseeable scenarios. Majority examined this question in 
uh, reference to two specific cases, um, both of which involved uh, the use of the internet. And so they found both that the internet makes it easier uh, for predators to get in touch with children, um, making children more susceptible to exploitation and abuse. And they also found that the dangers of sexualizing children is increasingly well-documented and the harms are more fully understood. So this went both to the breadth of the offense, so the range of conduct that could be caught by child luring, um, but also the issue of the meeting the medium and its effect on the message. Um, for example, Justice Martin said certain applications require users to indicate they are at the age of majority and old enough to be present, but it can be bypassed. Um, so uh, the first of the case, the cases was uh, an individual who pleaded guilty after having sex with a girl four times uh, over the course of two years, beginning when she was 13 and he was 22. Um, the fact that he's relatively young will be kind of important to the court's analysis. And he was uh, sentenced to a one-year mandatory minimum, which is the mandatory minimum for this offense, of course, given, um, given the specific factual scenario. And if there are aggravating circumstances, of course, this is just a minimum, the sentence can be higher. Um, and the court found that this one-year sentence in the case of this individual who had penetrative sex with a child um, was yes. not unconstitutional. Yeah. Oh, my uh, God. Um, not unconstitutional, um, but they found that in other reasonable hypotheticals, which I'm going to talk about in a moment, it could be unconstitutional. Um, and then the other appeal, so you often the Supreme Court will hear two together because it raises the same issue, was another person who challenged uh, the six-month uh, mandatory sentence um, where the Crown proceeds by summary conviction, which is just um, a different procedure, usually for less uh, serious crimes. Um, this case was uh, a bit different. Um, the individual complimented the intimate body parts of his 16-year-old niece and godchild at a family dinner um, while they were alone and then sent inappropriately sexual text messages. So um, lesser in severity. Um, and That's still uh, really disgusting. How, do you know how old he was? Just out of curiosity. Uh, I actually, it doesn't say, doesn't say, okay. Never mind. Yeah, so I'm not sure. So the court found that the constituent elements of the child luring offense are so broad and unconstrained so as to capture conduct that is only remotely related to the heart of the offense. And that's what makes mandatory minimums constitutionally suspect. Um, they said parliament, which of course uh, imposes these mandatory minimums by statute, could have designed it to allow judges the power to uh, apply an exemption where they found that the right against cruel and unusual punishment would be violated. Um, and they found that where parliament uh, creates criminal offenses for broad purposes and wide applications, um, which applies where they have a mandatory minimum to all sentences without use for dis discretion. So Judges have a sort of allergy to mandatory minimums because, of course, it deprives them of their discretion in sentencing appeals. So there's always uh, you always see judicial pushback against these um, you kind of understand. It's like judges are a hammer. Their job is to hit the nail and you're telling them you can't hit the nail. You have to just apply the mandatory minimum. Um, so Justice Suzanne Cote, Cote 
um, who is known as the sort of uh, queen of dissents. She dissented in this case. She was the only dissent. She found that the sentences, the mandatory minimum was not grossly disproportionate, um, nor contrary to Section 12 of the Charter. She found that while the offense is broad in scope, it also requires a high level of mens rea, so meaning mental intention, a mental mind state, which ensures that the offense captures only conduct that involves a high degree of moral blameworthiness, as well as serious harm or risk of such harm. So I don't know what you guys think about that, but I want to kind of zoom out um, to a meta issue that has been raised by this case, I, I, I assume, because I've heard from a few journalists who wanted to talk to me about this, is you see in these mandatory minimum Section 12 cases, um, the use of reasonable hypotheticals. And I don't actually know if this is a Canadian thing or, or uh, it's also in Commonwealth jurisdictions. I know that it's not a U.S. thing. So it's basically... Even if the sentence isn't cruel and unusual in the case of the person that's actually in, in the case at hand, can we imagine a scenario that would still fit under the offense where it would be cruel and unusual punishment? Um, and the judges drew on reasonable hypotheticals in this case, and they have an all of the mandatory minimums. So it's like, well, what if there was somebody who was a youthful offender, who was 18 and knew what he was doing, but it wasn't penetrative, you know, they, they would look at uh, a scenario that could pop up. And this uh, practice is kind of controversial, has attracted a good amount of criticism. Uh, the main arguments against the use of reasonable hypotheticals are that they obviously have an air of unreality. Like it's like, judges are just making stuff up. They're just imagining things. Um, so it's sort of unmoored from any predictability or consistency. Um, and then one of the things judges say in their defense about this is that, well, this is just common sense that this could come up. Well, if it was really common sense, why would it be argued at the Supreme Court of Canada? And obviously, Parliament disagrees that it's common sense. And Car Parliament has brought in these mandatory minimums to signal their denunciation and deterrence. Uh, and then finally, it's like, well, OK, if there's a reasonable fact scenario that could arise, why don't we just wait until it does arise rather than make stuff up? So I think those are kind of trenchant critiques. On the other hand, I will say from the position of the work that we do at the CCF, I see why there is a usefulness to asking about the reasonable scope and application of the law as drafted to determine its constitutionality. And so when we challenge restrictions on free expression, uh, for example, we will look at something kind of similar to reasonable hypotheticals. Like in our Calgary City protest ban, we said, well, if you're banning all protests to do with gender and national identity, what about a woman life freedom pro-Iranian democracy protest? What about a female genital mutilation protest? I will say there the rationale is different because it's about the chill effect. It's about chilling otherwise uh, lawful expression. And it's quite different from um, somebody who has been convicted of child luring. Um, but anyways, I'm curious to hear if you guys have thoughts on this. Um, yeah, I, I think part of the it's not quite the same, right? Because the Calgary case we're bringing as a public interest litigant without right. the facts on the table. So it's it's not a case where there's an individual whose rights have been breached and we're challenging it. We are challenging it in the abstract. So I think in a case like that, it is appropriate to talk about these reasonable hypotheticals on, on 
the facts of this case that just went to the Supreme Court on child luring, I, I mean, we there it wasn't just one case; it was a group of cases with facts in play, and we saw how the law was being applied. So I don't know the the why this focus on the reasonable hypotheticals. And whenever I see judges do this, and they do it, like judges like asking these hypotheticals. And often when I see it happen, the, the lawyers are the ones who don't like it. Like, well, that is not the case before you. The case before you is my client who has done X, well, Y, and Z. criminal defense lawyers like it. <laughs> <laughs> so either way, one last comment that Whatever we think about it, and I'm curious if Josh has thoughts, it seems like uh, the use of reasonable hypotheticals is here to stay because this was directly before the court in a decision that was released March of this year called Hills, um, where the use of reasonable hypos was directly challenged. And they said, no, it's valid. Um, but they did attempt to rein them in a bit and circumscribe them to say that the hypothetical must be a reasonably foreseeable be in the range of conduct contemplated in the offense and C, uh, may consider personal characteristics without being too removed or far-fetched. Not sure what is meant by that. Um, but Josh, any thoughts on reasonable hypotheticals? Uh, I'm of two minds about reasonable hypotheticals. Like, first of all, they're really fun to come up with. So mm -hmm. I like, I like it from that aspect. Um, and also more more seriously, a lot of these issues, like I, I think we just pointed out, the Supreme Court is not deciding a lot of cases. So if you have, um, you know, a legal issue and you're not sure what, where the actual line is between what's constitutional and what isn't, it's, it is good in my view to have the Supreme Court provide some guidance on that, which they do when they consider these reasonable hypotheticals. But I actually think the bigger issue, just hearing your you know summary of that case, which I haven't read, is section 12, like cruel and unusual punishment, I think is being a sort of stretched well beyond what it was intended for. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's supposed to be reserved for those things that are really obviously grossly disproportionate. And it seems like the courts here are, are um, as they often do, uh, taking power away from the legislature that has, you know, studied this issue, consulted with the public and decided that no, if you are engaged in child luring, you have to go to jail for, you know, six months or a year, which seems like a reasonable place to draw the line. So I'm more concerned about sort of the abuse of uh, Section 12 than than reasonable hypotheticals. But um, I guess we know now that they're they're here to stay. Joanna, did did the um court consider i know a lot of section 12 cases like the case of bissonette which was the mass shooter in quebec who shot a mosque up and killed many people there one of the things the court considered in that was this notion that in his case it was about stacking of parole ineligibilities and they talked about how that would shock the conscience of canadians did they talk about that in in these cases they didn't as much. They did talk about the relative youth of at least the 22-year-old offender, where they were like, well, if you look at the effect on the rest of his life of doing a one-year prison term, um, given that he's relatively young, like it could mess up his ability to like get a job for the rest of his life, that went into the cruel and unusual punishment. But again, that person had penetrative sex with a 13-year-old four times. So. Yeah, I, I think the whole notion of the shocking of the conscience of the public, it, when judges talk about that, I think they just don't understand the public. Because I think that 
the, the, it shocks no one, the conscience uh, of like elite the, judges, right? Yeah, but I think not normal shocks, people. It shocks the conscience of the public that these people are not like in jail for life. That is what the public wants. So I I think that that part of the test is not. I I don't know. I think there's a problem with it because the judges are so removed from what the public actually thinks. Okay, let's move on. We'll take a break and then I'm going to give my freedom update. Hi, I'm Russell from the CCF. In case you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to our email newsletter, The Freedom Update, to get updates from me every week about our ongoing work and the legal stories in Canada that keep us interested. It's one of the best ways to stay up to date. Subscribe at the ccf.ca slash freedom update. Okay, so my freedom update this week, just one of the things I'm working on is I have a new ebook that is coming out that's going to be available for free for all of our listeners and subscribers and CCF supporters. So the book is called Healthcare Choice in Canada, Innovative Policy Solutions to Improving Canada's Failing Healthcare System. And it's going to be available at the ccf.ca slash healthcare book. Now, the book is a collaboration with a number of different organizations. And we've commissioned essays from some of the thought leaders on healthcare choice in Canada. So I have an article, an essay in this book about healthcare choice through the courts. There's an article from the McDonald Laurier Institute about patient choice and how it drives quality in medical care. There's an article from the president of Second Street, another charity about preventative healthcare. The Fraser Institute has an essay about how measuring healthcare performance is a way of creating greater accountability. The Montreal Economic Institute has included an essay about how European models on aging in your own home can save money for Canadian governments by reducing institutionalization. And there is an article from the Frontier Center for Public Policy on the role that politicians can play in healthcare choice. So that's going to be available on that website. And anyone who has the link can download it for free as one of the resources that we want to give to everyone who supports our work. So that's it for me. Let's move on to bad legal takes. Josh, what's yours? Mine's from Emmett McFarlane, who's a political scientist at the University of Waterloo. McFarlane's probably best known for um, taking like some really insane positions during the COVID-19 pandemic. There was never any like lockdown or curfew or rights restriction proposed that he didn't support. And he'd kind of like viciously go after anybody on Twitter who raised any opposition to that. Um, McFarland's obviously also known for his work on constitutional law, which is sometimes reasonable, often quite interesting. But I think this latest opinion is not um, is not great. So McFarland told the Regina Leader Post that despite Saskatchewan's legislature having passed legislation that invokes Section 33 of the Charter, the notwithstanding clause, to require that schools not use preferred pronouns of kids under 16 without parental consent, a court could somehow still declare the law unconstitutional by using Section 28 of the Charter. And for those who don't know, Section 33 says legislatures can allow an act or provision to operate notwithstanding for five years if they do so expressly in legislation. And this text pretty clearly shows that, you know, it overrides the rights in Sections 2 and 7 to 15 as long as it's done expressly expressly 
in legislation. And this exists because provinces retain some level of supremacy, even though the Charter's Constitutional Supremacy Clause um, exists. And it sort of exists because, you know, judges aren't always right. And sometimes sometimes legislatures need to, to push back. So anyway, McFarland is saying that Section 28, which says, quote, notwithstanding anything else in this charter, the rights and freedoms in it are guaranteed equally to male and female persons, is a trump to Section 33, which is the actual notwithstanding clause. And he says this means, quote, it doesn't apply in contexts where sex discrimination is that issue. Section 33 does not extend to bills that have a disproportionate impact on sex. And this could be extended to a context where sexual identity is the characteristic under attack by a law. And if you've never heard of this magical trump card in Section 28, that's because it doesn't exist. Um, Section 28, of course, exists, but as people like University of Alberta Assistant Professor Gerard Kennedy has pointed out, along with many judges, by the way, sections 25 to 31 of the Charter are interpretive aids, and they don't uh, protect any substantive rights. So this means basically if Section 33 is operating notwithstanding a provision in Section 2 or Sections 7 to 15 of the Charter, there's nothing for these interpretive aids to interpret um, because, and and they basically never come into play. And the Supreme Court has considered Section 28 13 times, and this is all uh, discussed in Gerard's paper, which we'll, we'll put in the show notes. And Section 28 has always been seen as just an interpretive aid. So, you know, for example, if the case is about freedom of expression, Section 28 might help the court decide whether that's whether a limit's demonstrably justified if it's going to enhance equality between the sexes, but you can't just use Section 28 as this trump card and claim your rights have been infringed. The case Hack and Attorney General of Quebec is probably like the leading case that explains that Section 28 doesn't override 33. And in that case, uh, it was argued that, you know, Quebec couldn't use the notwithstanding clause to ban wearing religious symbols, which is an obvious violation of freedom of religion because, you know, Section 28 um, provided some sort of trump card over Section 33. Justice Blanchard came to the same conclusion that nearly every other judge came to, and that's that Section 28 is just interpretive. And so, Emmett, um, just like everything you talked about COVID-related, I think you're just plain wrong on this one, and you're my bad legal take of the week. Christine, uh, you have one from... Uh, a regular producer of bad legal takes. Tell us, bad tell takes us about generally. bad so takes mine generally. Is, mine is from Nora Loretto, who I think has just like the worst opinions about absolutely everything uh, on the internet. She's this woman who said that people were only sad about that tragic Humboldt bus crash where all of those kids died. She said people were only sad because the kids are white. Like, so disgusting, these opinions she has. Um, And I think she does it on purpose. Like, I think that she intentionally tries to have bad provocative takes to get people mad. So, I mean, she, she, she does. It works. So she's been tweeting some pretty awful stuff about the Israel-Hamas war. Um, and to quote her, Zionist doctors, which I think we all know is a euphemism for something else. But this one stood out to me, this tweet that I'm going to read stood out to me because it related to my news headline, which was that members, um, those Jewish CUPE members suing CUPE 
but it more stood out to me because it is so lacking in any self-awareness. So in response to Catherine Marshall's announcement of that human rights complaint against CUPE, Loretto tweeted, fuck democracy, lawyers are the ones who should decide, which is unintentionally so hilarious because I think all of us here on this podcast are probably, you know, somewhat of judicial skeptics. I think we we have concerns that the court regularly bulldozes over the will of the legislature, whether it's the case that we just talked about that Joanna did of, you know, mandatory minimums or the Bissonette uh, case of the mass, mass killer at that mosque, um, and the stacking of the parole ineligibility. The court said, you know, that's got to go too or limits on euthanasia for mentally ill people or people with drug addictions or even people just with allergies. The court said those <laughs> limits have to go too. The court said no to the, the legislature's will on supervised injection, on brothels. I mean, I could go on and on. Quite literally, this phrase Nora Loretto used cracks me up because I can actually see myself using it angrily in response to one of those decisions. So it's a good um, legal take? No, because <laughs> I don't think she knows what she's saying. Um, I can even see the Supreme Court earnestly putting that in one of their own decisions. You know, I just think it's a bad legal take because Nora Loretto does not feel the same way about all those other cases. Um and look, as I said, I have some skepticism about this, these human rights tribunals generally, but I don't really think that Loretto's phrase applies to this QP case, it, but it sure uh, it sure applies to all these other cases. And I may, in fact, have to steal it and start using it myself, but with with different intent. Joanna, what about you? What's your bad legal take? So mine is a bad legal take co-signed by, at last I checked, uh, over 550 members of the bar. So this was an open letter. I'm not sure who actually wrote it, um, but uh, in its own copy, it says it was drawn up in response to pervasive repression, repression of speech and scholarship on Palestinian liberation. Uh, law students and lawyers are being threatened with academic sanctions and job loss for advocating against Israel's atrocities in Palestine. Um, and so signed by over 550 members of the bar. Um, and I was talking to our friend Asher Honigman about this, and he pointed out well that this uh, this letter is a classic Mott and Bailey. So I just read you the sort of uh, preamble um, and they talk about cancel culture and being bullied. Um, but then they also say, we reject the notion that it is anti-Semitic, hateful, or illegitimate to contextualize the October 7th attack. Similarly, we reject the notion that it is anti-Semitic, hateful, or illegitimate to express support for Palestinians in the face of ongoing Israeli apartheid and genocide. So we've already talked about the genocide argument um, and uh, and the, the apartheid argument, but really um, the, the Bailey part, um, the part that's being conflated in, you know, I have nothing against people who want to advocate for Palestinian rights or share the Palestinian narrative. I actually just listened last night to an interview on the Ezra Klein show with a Palestinian scholar and activist, and I found it very useful. Um, the part that's being smushed into this is the part about, quote unquote, contextualizing the October 7th attacks, um, 
when we know, and we've already mentioned in this episode, what those attacks consisted of. Contextualization must not become relativization. But look, we know um, by the specific positions that have been expounded on by specific signatories of this letter, like Heidi Matthews, um, who tweeted uh, that there's a lot of obfuscation about what the right to resistance looks like in brutally asymmetrical contexts. Um, and she tweeted that the day after October 7th. So in other words, calling October 7th justified resistance and justifying, um, a, you know, face-to-face massacre of innocents as well as kidnapping. So that is very different from saying that people who want to speak up for Palestinian liberation um, should be protected and shouldn't be bullied. And our colleague Sean Spear had a great piece last week called The Left Has a Self-Policing Problem. Um, And this is what he means, that there's a lot of unsavory stuff that's trying to be rolled into otherwise um, fairly shocking endorsements of violence. Um, So, yes, uh, for the 550 people who signed this letter, this is a bad legal take, um, but good to know who you are. Uh, Josh, you want to close us out? Yeah. So as usual, we, we hope you'll rate us, review us and subscribe. And I really do mean go rate us and review us because it helps us. Um, and if you do that, I might tell you what I really think about the new Chief Justice. I'm, I'm only kidding, I already told you everything I know about her. Uh, just a reminder, you can support our work by subscribing to the CCF's YouTube channel, by following us on Twitter, or by visiting our website, theccf.ca, where you can sign up for our Freedom Update newsletter written by our colleague, Russ. The Canadian Constitution Foundation is a nonpartisan legal charity funded by your donations, so please click that donate button on our website if you can. Thanks for listening.